I mentioned this last week, that uh, the North American Baptist Conference has been, um, they say that an event called Triennial, they do it every three years, it happened this past week, this weekend, and it just finished uh, about an hour ago, and uh, I was able to sit in on a, num- a number of different sessions and uh, and just hear what God is doing in North America with our denomination, with the North American Baptist Conference, and it was so encouraging to hear story after story after story of ways that that God has, is moving and at work in churches uh, around Canada and around the United States. And I was able to sit in on a number of um, uh, breakouts that were related to social injustice and racial injustice uh, in, in North America. And, and I was so encouraged by the, the conversation that was being had because I think it's one of those things where we can either bury our heads in the sand and we can dismiss it and we can say it's not an issue, we can say it's, there's other things going on that are more important, but I think that as a church and as a, as a denomination, I was so encouraged and, and proud of our denomination for saying this is something that we, we, we recognize as a problem. And, uh, and as a church, we can, as a denomination, we have a voice that we can use to represent uh, marginalized people all over the, all over the country, all over the, the world, actually. And, uh, and so I was, it was really encouraging to hear our denomination saying we want to be on the front lines of this, with, of this conversation, so that we can be a part of change. And uh, so I just wanted just to pass that on and say, you know, our denomination is doing some really good things that uh, that we, we should be proud of as a, as a church. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our message this morning. Lord, thanks for today. Thanks for the, the time we can worship you, and for the ways that. Um, that we can just reflect on who you are, reflect on your nature. God, we pray that, that this morning that we would be able to uh, hear from you. And as we continue this, as we conclude this series, uh, Lord, that you, would, that you would speak into our lives in some, some way. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you recall, uh, two weeks ago, we started a series called Donkeys, Babies, and Bears, Oh My. And we considered... Uh, two weeks ago, how from Numbers chapter, the book of Numbers chapter 22, how a donkey was actually a, actually more spiritually present with God than his owner was. Last week, we considered the injustice of two moms struggling to survive and who actually agreed to, to eat their own children in a desperate situation. And, and we recognized the injustice that exists in our world today as well. This morning, as we conclude our series, though, we'll be taking a deeper dive into a passage that has often raised lots of red flags for a lot of people. Uh, in fact, it's, it's been kind of, it, it's, it has been, it has caused some humorous conversation as well because it just doesn't make sense and just try to make sense of this portion of scripture. And, and if, if you have some dark humor, that's probably where um, the humor comes from. Josh. Um, <coughs> So let me read from 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Now he, this is Elisha, now he, Elisha went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the road, some young boys came out from the city and ridiculed him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 of the boys. He then went on from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Well, this story certainly gives us pause, doesn't it? One might say it is a grisly story. One might also say that Elisha couldn't bear to be called bald. 
that is still as interesting as it is, is incredibly troubling and problematic in many ways, isn't it? But I think it can't, this, this, this section of Scripture can't be read in isolation. In order for us to fully understand what's happening in this passage, we actually need to go back three verses and start from there. And so I'm going to read from verses 19 to 22 as well, and then we'll carry on uh, verses 20, 23 to 25. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the sight of the city is pleasant as my Lord's feet, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, This is what the Lord says. I have purified these waters. There shall not come from there death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day in accordance with the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Now he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up with the road, some young boys came out from the city and ridiculed him and said to him, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods, tore up the forty-two boys. He then went on from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now I know what you're all thinking. I'm so glad that he read those three verses, because now I completely understand the story of the 42 boys being torn up by a couple of female bears. The reality, of course, is that this is a tremendously confusing portion of Scripture. It has been the subject of all kinds of misinterpretations, all kinds of misunderstandings, and because of all the confusion baked into this section of Scripture, it has, it has inevitably led to a number of different controversies as well, between the young boys being mauled by bears, what's that about, between these two bears being actually seems to be sent by God, or God's actions happened because one of God's messengers cursed these group of boys and asked God to do it, or that, God, or that this messenger actually cursed these, these boys because they called them bald. It just doesn't make sense. Why this prophet would react the way that he does? It just seems like an overreaction in many different ways, doesn't it? And I don't know about you, but I'm prone to overreacting at times as well. Maybe when I'm tired or distracted, feeling stressed, who knows? And we have different reasons why we overreact at times. Admittedly, I can't say that I've overreacted to the point where I've wished a couple of bears would go and destroy whoever it is that I'm overreacting upset about, but that's just a different situation. But if that is all there is to this story, just a major overreaction, and I think it creates a number of problems for us in terms of what we understand about God's nature and what it means to be used for God's holy purpose, as you see from Elisha. And just like the last couple of weeks, I think we need to wrestle with the question that if it's in the Bible, we need to ask ourselves why. Why is it in the Bible? Why is this story in Scripture, what is it trying to show us about the nature of God, and how is it relevant for us today? Now, just to be clear and totally transparent with us this morning, I suspect that even after this morning's message, not working. Work in progress. Work in progress here. As I said, 
just to be clear and, and transparent with us this morning, that I suspect that even after this morning's message, that there is going to be some un- unanswered questions about this passage. My hope, though, is that as we go as we go through it, that the questions that you have right now may actually be different at the end of the service compared to what they are right now. I'm hoping that we'll be able to answer those, some of those things as we work our way through this portion of Scripture. One of the sayings that I often like to use as I tackle a big project, and my kids know this, and the things that seem overwhelming, often ask, I often make the comment, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And that's kind of how we have to, I think we're going to approach this portion of Scripture this morning, one bite at a time. So let's take our first bite from 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. Now Elisha went up from there to Bethel. A couple of things to note here from this verse is where is Elisha coming from? So if we go back a little bit into chapter 2, we would have seen that Elisha had actually left Israel for a time with his predecessor, Elisha. And, and they had actually had crossed over the Jordan River, and they had actually left Israel. One of the things you're going to notice in my sermon this morning is that I'm going to enunciate Elijah and Elisha fairly regularly, okay? So it's just to make sure we don't get the two individuals confused and mixed up. While Elijah and Elisha were there, though, Elijah gets taken up into heaven. And this event in many ways is akin to, to the time in Israel's history where the, when the Jews are wandering through the wilderness. And as Moses and, and the Israelites are preparing to cross the Jordan River, Moses stays back and hands the mantle of leadership, authority, responsibility to Joshua as they cross over into Israel. That is a similar event to what's happening here. That Elijah has, 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 Elijah and Elisha have left Israel. Elijah has now left. He's staying back. But the prophetic responsibilities now have been handed over to Elisha. So now when Elisha crosses over the Jordan River and, and approaches and returns to Jericho, he is re-entering, and it's signifying the beginning of a new season of prophetic ministry within the history of Israel. The baton has been passed on to Elisha, and the first thing he does is perform a purifying act uh, in Jericho in verse 21 and 22, very similar to the pur- purifying act that we see in Joshua chapter 6, when Joshua and the Israelites enter into Israel, a purifying act happens when they destroy Jericho. This time, Elisha is now purifying the water. There's a repentance that's happened there. Elijah, though, went out to the spring. So this is verses 21 and 22. Elijah went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day according to the word Elisha has spoken. Now this event here is important because we need to make sure that as we read, that we can't read that section about the bears in isolation to this story. Because in verse 21 21 and 22, is where we begin to see the first half of Elisha's prophetic ministry in Israel. The, the first half is, is where we see that Elisha is, is responsible for blessing the people who have repented. Blessing God's people. That's the first half of Elisha's prophetic ministry, blessing Israel. So verse 21 and 22 become this expression of God's blessing through Elisha. We know, though, that after Elisha purifies the water, that he approaches Bethel. Bethel, historically, has been mentioned throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament specifically. It's first introduced in Genesis chapter 12 and 13, when Abram goes and he builds an altar to the Lord when he, when he arrives in Canaan. 
Unfortunately, over time, about 700, 800 years has passed, somewhere in there. But over time, though, the spiritual climate has eroded so significantly in Bethel that the, that the people and the king and the authorities there have become so, apath- not just apathetic, but actually, they've actually outlawed worship of, the, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so, depending on who you are, it would be potentially punishable by death. And so, this is the environment that, that Elisha now is approaching. In addition to Jewish worship being outlawed, the city of Bethel is also kind of the hub. It's kind of a centerpiece for pagan worship of Baal. So let's pause for a minute. Let's reflect on our first bite today. Elisha has just witnessed his mentor, his spiritual ally, his friend, the, the primary voice of prophetic ministry, Elijah, taking up into heaven. He's no longer in the picture. Elisha had now been given the responsibility of the, as the primary voice of prophesying God's word to the Israelites. We see that his first act as this new prophetic voice in Israel is to purify and bless Jericho. And then finally, we realize that he's entering into Bethel, which is a hub for paganistic practices that are not just apathetic towards the God of Yahweh, but actively oppose and resist God. And I would imagine at this point that if you and I, if we were like Elisha, that we're probably likely feeling the effects of sorrow and mourning as Elijah is in heaven now. I would imagine that that Elisha is now feeling the weight and burden of carrying this significantly heavy burden of being the primary voice of God in this very resistant cultural climate. I would also imagine that Elisha is probably a little bit on edge and preparing for a fight and expecting resistance as he makes his way into a very inhospitable environment at Bethel. Let's take our second bite in verse 23. As he, was going, as he was going up by the road, some young boys came out from the city. I think this, this piece of scripture here is where a lot of us get caught up with, because unfortunately in a lot of translations in our Bibles, we, there's, there's, there's some misunderstanding of what I think the intention of that, some of the words in the Hebraic language are. And, and commentators, most com- the majority of commentators would say there's a difference in, in what, is, what was originally wrote in Hebrew compared to what we see in most, script, in most translations. I'll give you an example. King James Version. As he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. Message translation. Elisha was on his way to Bethel, and some little kids came out from the town and taunted him. New International Version. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. And then again, the passage that we, the scripture, the translation we've been using is North American Standard Bible. As he was going up by the road, some young boys came out from the city. Now, if we were to take those two Hebrew words that that most translations have used as little or kids or boys and, and identified what those two words are, it's going to give us a little bit different picture of what is that's going to help influence how we understand this passage of Scripture. So first of all, the word little. In Hebrew, that word is katan. Kids, boys, children. Uh, by the way, I apologize for any linguistic people that are cringing at my Hebrew. Um, 
kids, boys, children. In Hebrew is the word nayar. Most commentators agree that a better understanding of these words would be to translate, first of all, to translate katan as unimportant or insignificant. Probably a, the most accurate way to describe it would be servant. So it's a group of servants. Nayar, carrying that same emphasis of servants, but also carrying the, the weight of youth, the, valid, the, 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 the interpretation of youth. So what we need to note here is that the word nayar is a very ambiguous term used in Scripture. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see this word used. But the age, the age range ranges from like age 6 to age 40. So it's a very broad definition of what sort of, what sort of um, age we're talking about here. Most commentators, again, think that probably the most accurate, trans, actually, most accurate understanding of, of what Nayar means here in this passage is right around the ages of 15 to 30. So it's very different understanding of how we interpret this, this passage. It's not little kids. It's not little kindergartners running around calling, you know, innocently calling this man Baldy. This is a group of teenagers, a group of young adults that are, that are, that are jeering and making fun of Elisha. The other word, Katan, tells us that this group of men aren't just out for a walk. It's just not, not just a gang hanging outside of Bethel waiting for strangers to show up. We know and think that yeah, that these guys are servants. Specifically, remember, this is a pagan pub. These are servants of priests of Baal. In the eyes of these priestly servants, this, this collection of young men, Elisha and the God he speaks for is a threat. He represents everything that they oppose as their pagan idolatry. So again, let's pause for a minute. Let's recap. Let's make sure we're all tracking together because there's a lot of restructuring, reshaping what's, what's happening in this passage. So Elisha, mourning the loss of his mentor, considering his role as prophet in Israel, entering an unwelcome environment in Bethel, known for its paganism and opposition to God. He's confronted by a mob of young adults who make it clear that they don't want him or the message he carries there. I remember as a kid, I was probably 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in there. And uh, it was the winter time, and so some buddies of mine, we, were, we went tobogganing. And uh, there was another group of uh, young people that were there, a, couple, a group of youth, probably about nine or ten of them. And, uh, and they would, they had one of those big inflatable tubes, and they just heaped all, everyone on top. And there's like this massive humanity on top of, piled on top of each other as they barreled down this hill. Unfortunately, as they were going down, they accidentally clipped a little girl. And they, they hit her, they hit this little girl. She was probably six or seven at the time, and they, and they hit her. And, uh, and I remember the little girl running back to her house crying, and, and, uh, and almost instantly, the dad came up. You know, talking about angry bears. This is kind of the situation here. Angry dad came up. And he started, and, and the little girl pointed to the group of boys, and said, that was them. And so he rushes over, and he starts tearing into them screaming at them and profanity and anger and everything else. What I wasn't expecting was that some of the boys that were, not, that were part of the group had not been yelled at go into the bush and gather some sticks. And they came out and they attacked this man. And 
and they began to beat this poor dad with these sticks that they had just pulled from the trees. And, this was, and there was probably eight or nine of them. Obviously, very terrifying for, for us, who were you know, caught off guard by this whole situation. But poor guy, dad, there to defend his daughter, didn't stand a chance against eight or nine enemies. Imagine now a scene where Elisha is approaching this hostile environment, and now Elisha is being surrounded by at least 42 of these priestly servants. We know there's at least 42 because verse 25 tells us. At least 42 of these priestly servants who know who know that King Ahab is actively opposing and persecuting any supporters of the God of Israel. And you're all alone by yourself. Are you getting a different picture of what this passage is now? I hope you're beginning to see that there's a very different reality that, that I think most of us, including myself, envision when we first read this passage, that, that Elisha is not just being teased by a bunch of kindergarten kids, but this is an intense situation where Elisha is being mobbed by a very dangerous and hostile group of people loyal to the pagan deity Baal. But it's the words that they use that carry the weight. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Now I know that most of us have insecurities, baldness, body image, careers, financial status, you name it. You there's probably every one of us here that has some sort of fear that we don't measure up in one form or another, and we feel a degree of insecurity over it. So is that all there is here? Is that all that's going on with Elisha? Is he just really insecure about his male pattern baldness? I don't think so. I think there's got to be more to it than that. So what's so significant about go up, you bald head? First of all, Based on what I've been studying, there, there's, not, there's not universal consensus exactly what's going on here. First, there's a couple. One thought is that maybe he was bald, that he had a skin condition similar to leprosy, and, and so they were making fun of him about it and, and uh, maybe even considering that he might be unclean. That's one theory. Another one is that maybe he shaved his head because he was grieving the loss of, his, of Elijah. Those two, you know, I can understand that doesn't seem to me to make the most sense in terms of consistently understanding the rest of the scripture, the story here. I think what's happening here, we need, we need to go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7 to 9. It says, the king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told, told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around the waist, his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. The context of this conversation is completely irrelevant to us. What we really need to care about here is the description that these messengers use to describe Elijah. He had a garment of hair. What they're saying here is that Elijah was a hairy dude. He had enough hair on him that it was a distinguishing feature for him, whether it was facial hair, back hair, hair in his scalp, maybe he had like a vicious unibrow, nose hair, I don't know what it was, but, the, but there was something about Elijah that, was, that was made him a really hairy guy. The reason this is relevant for our interpretation today is that the mob is taunting Elisha by calling him a bald head. 
what they're saying has nothing to do with Elisha's head specifically. But it's more a symbolic reference to the absence of Elijah and the absence of this hairy man who was the, who was the original prophetic voice in Israel. Elijah was gone, which meant that Elisha had lost his hair. Now, you need to remember that Elisha was just starting this, his, this ministry. Excuse me. You need to remember that Elisha was just starting this ministry. So he was probably a fairly young guy himself. Again, probably no more than older than 30. So he's fairly similar age to this mob of young people that are harassing him, calling him, calling, telling him to go up. And they're saying, do we really need to be fearful of this guy? He's the same age as us. What are we afraid of? The other important piece to note here is that as the mob is saying, go up, you bald head. They're saying, go up. The term go up here is actually an, is another direct reference to Elijah and a challenge to Elisha's prophetic authority as well. We read in chapter 2, verse 11, as Elisha and Elijah were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. This was actually a fairly well-known event that most people knew was going to happen. People would approach Elisha and say, hey, you know Elijah's going to get taken up to heaven soon, right? And he'd be like, yeah, I know. Stop talking about it. And it happens, it's documented in that chapter a couple times. So when the mob says, go up, they are challenging Elisha and saying, if you're as powerful as your predecessor Elisha, perform a miracle like he just did and, went, and go up to heaven. In fact, just get out of here. And so the words, go up, you bald head, go up, is a challenge to Elisha's authority and whether he can do the same ministry, the same miracles that Elisha was doing before. The reality is here is that this wasn't just a direct insult and challenge to Elisha's prophetic ministry, but it was ultimately a challenge towards God as well, who Elisha represented. Which sets the stage for our last fight of the night, verse 24 and 25. Elisha turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys, and he went on to Mount Carmel, went, went on to Mount, went on to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. Easy for me to read. Earlier, I had mentioned that part of Elijah's prophetic ministry was in Israel was to bless it. That's what he does in Jericho. He he he, he blesses the water there as a way to represent the, the repentance that has occurred in Jericho. The second part of, of, Ish, of um, Elisha's ministry in Israel is to pronounce judgment over it and curse the land and the people who rebel against it. Because of the response of this mob towards Elisha, his prophetic ministry in many ways was being challenged. It was in jeopardy, so this taunt needed to be dealt with decisively and show that that Elisha represented the message that God had given him. And that's what we're seeing here, verse 24 and 25, where we now realize that there's a very different set of circumstances from how we first read this passage, that it's not just a bunch of bratty punk kids harassing this old bald curmudgeon, but instead this is a direct attack on God and his prophet 
as this young man, Elisha, is newly tasked with being the voice of a prophetic ministry and prophetic message of blessing and judgment over Israel. The two bears serve as a sentence for those who blaspheme against the true God. Here's the amazing thing about this. This is actually a fulfillment of a prediction that happened 800 years before this event occurred in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 21 and 22. It says, If you show hostility towards me and are, and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Listen to this. I will also let loose among you the animals of the field, which will deprive you of your children. Keep a little bit farther along in that same in that same chapter in Leviticus, verse chapter twenty-six, verse twenty-nine. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons, and you will eat the flesh of your daughters. Sound familiar from last week? Same prophetic timeline is happening here from Leviticus twenty-six. It's now just being predicted 800 years before it actually happens. And what we're reading here from 2 Kings from, with Elisha as God's prophet is a direct reference to what's happening, what's being prophesied in Leviticus 26. And here we see that Elisha is pointing the Israelites towards a, a trajectory of redemption that would reconcile them to God. Ultimately, this redemptive plan would involve a repentance from idolatry, disobedience, and sin that has ultimately steered the Israelites into a path of self-destruction, but also into a path of spiritual alienation from God. Through Elisha, the Israelites would begin to see that obedience to God results in a blessing. We know that. But that through Elisha, the Israelites would also see that disobedience to God results in a actually begin to see this pattern consistently throughout Scripture, doesn't it? We see this, cons- this pattern repeated from God, who repeatedly extends opportunities for reconciliation with God, to the, and, and he, where he's, God seems to be incredibly gracious to people who reject Him time and time and time again. That's the old covenant narrative in a nutshell, isn't it? That the law couldn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished. But the people continue to reject God and live lives rooted in sin and selfishness. The good news of Jesus, though, is that what the law couldn't accomplish, Jesus accomplished. He fulfilled the intent of the sacrificial system, and he became the perfect sacrifice for us. He became the, he received the consequence, the curse that we were meant to receive. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8, God, for God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even though you and I, like these servants of Baal, rejected God through our attitudes and actions, but yet because of God's unconditional love for us, sent his son to rescue us from that punishment for our sins. So instead of experiencing the judgment of, of God like these 42 young men did, that we might experience a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ instead. And this portion of Scripture here from 2 Kings chapter 2 is this vivid reminder for us that God's judgment is a very real reality for all of us. But we know 
for those of us who know Jesus. Those of us who have an ongoing, transforming relationship with him that we can experience a life that we can be spared from the consequences of our sin choices, that we can actually experience that purification that Jericho enjoyed. And instead, we can live a life that's filled with forgiveness, purpose, ambition. I invite the worship team to come on up here. This morning, if you're online or if you're here in person, if you are, if you're sensing this morning that maybe you've been waiting some form or fashion to that mob of young young boys. Maybe there's an aspect in your life where you've been defiant towards God in some form or fashion, in some way. Maybe it's pride or arrogance or anger or you just maybe just have that desire for control over your situations and you're just unwilling to let it go. Maybe it's apathy or resentment or bitterness. Maybe it's just like a general posture of skepticism. Maybe it's self-preservation or protectionism, or maybe it's just generally just fear. I wonder this morning if maybe God is calling you to a form of repentance. Maybe today is a day that you can turn from that path of spiritual distance from God and instead experience the, the, richness, the richness of a new relationship with God, the one that he promised to forgive us. That's you this morning. I just invite you to pray with me. Lord, I need you in this place. And you know the ways that I have been apart from you. The ways that I oppose you, resist you.